Welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. Our SJI 10 Minute Lesson series aims to educate and inform listeners on a particular area of policy, giving a brief overview of somewhere in the range of 8 to 15 minutes and hitting on the key points that people need to know. Our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back to some of the most important presentations at past events. And our SJI interview series, where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. This week, we're joined by Eddie Darcy, the CEO or head gardener of the Sullis Project. The project works with young people to equip and empower them to live life to the full. They also provide a prison programme delivering a combination of pre and post release support services to young offenders that are essential to the successful reduction of reoffending rates. Eddie spoke to us about the overall project, rehabilitative justice, models in other European countries compared to Ireland and the importance of those long term supports. We hope you enjoy it. Today we have Eddie Darcy, who's the CEO, head gardener of the Sullis Project. Thank you very much, Eddie, for your time and your energy to highly valuable commodities in the in, in the in the current climate um first thing eddie can you explain the head gardener to job title i thought that was very interesting okay okay so so this project was initially founded by a finnish lady who was married to a community worker invo- involved with the community of a church of Ireland community of saint catherine's on thomas street and um she had trained in child psychology and she moved to live in the area and she was conscious of all these children not attending school. And she said, what's going on here, you know? So she set up an after-school club for a group of girls who were struggling in school. And so this project grew out of that. It, initially, it was a voluntary thing. And then it employed some part-time staff. But one of the main movers and supporters of it was a guy called Graham Jones. So Graham, Graham was a very interesting character that he um, was a corporate lawyer. You know, had studied in UCD, into rugby. You know, you know, gone to a good school. You know, so, uh, but he was involved in the in the congregation of St Catherine's. So he was getting more. He felt that really corporate law corporate law didn't really suit him. Wanted to be able to do something more for the young people he was meeting through the through Solis project. So he moved to criminal justice and set up a practice there, working with juvenile offenders. And again was unhappy in that role. He was saying the same kids uh, and the same families on a cyclical basis and nothing was really changing. So he gave up his, his lucrative employment as a, as a solicitor and took on the role as of um, head gardener and CEO of Solace Project. Now, it was very small at the time, around 2013, and he developed a language of cultivation on the basis that it was about growing young people and it was about... Uh, I suppose young people are given opportunities and given the right environment and the right support that they could grow and flourish. So it was that concept. So staff had titles such as uh, cultivator or cultivator manager or head gardener. And that was the, that was the, the, the background to the particular language. Now, so this project at the time was completely funded on a voluntary basis. There was no statutory funding. And then Graham approached me and said he was developing a new program w- w- looking to work in prisons. And, the, you know, that the organizations struggle often to engage with prisoners when they come out. Um, and he had the idea that we went into the prisons and ran programs in the prisons and got to know young men in particular well. Well, we have a far better chance of having them engage us when they come out. 
So the Compass project was born. Initially, it operated in St. Patrick's Institution and concentrated on 17 and 18 year olds. And then when that was closed, the program moved to Wheatfield Prison with the under 17 year olds. So the, the concept and the model is, and the model still is today, we go in there, we run programs, to, which brings us into regular contact with groups of prisoners. We speak to them about whether they would, whether they would welcome aftercare support when they come out of prison. And then we offer them a three-year support package when they come out. And that's proved quite successful in terms of the level of engagement with those who do come out, because we know them well at that stage. Um, and that, that program now has been extended into Mount Joy as well. And, you know, some discussion with Oberstown about the possibility of offering support to younger offenders there. So Jay, uh, Graham had convinced me to come in to help him develop that model and write up the model and then to train some new staff because the, the program was receiving some funding from the prison service to train some staff in, you know, the skills they would need to, to engage with young men, in many cases, young men who've been very badly damaged by society, but also young men that in many cases have been let down by other organisations and by statutory organisations in the past. And that unfortunately ended up serving sentences at a relatively young age. So I had taken on the CEO role on a part-time basis, um, you know, because Graham had specifically asked me, he thought I was a good fit for the organization, you know? So that was um, 2016. So I've been more or less the CEO since then. I, I'm just in the process now of retiring okay. and uh, leaving it in fairly, fairly good hands. My main function coming in with the board was in terms of trying to stabilize funding because the project was, was trying to raise you know, approximately 300,000 euros a year, voluntary money to keep it going. The only statutory funding it has, strange enough, was from the prison service who actually believed in the project, you know. So since then, we've managed to secure funding from the probation service and we've, we've developed a new program which uh, supports very serious young offenders under the age of 18. So this was a group that were deemed unsuitable by the Garda Juvenile Diversion Program. So they weren't allowed on that program they were, they, could be, they were given permission, they, get, they gave permission to Gardaí and the DPP to charge them. So those young people going into the court system and invariably will probably end up in detention. But unfortunately, while they're awaiting that period, which could take two years, they will continue to offend at a very, very high rate. And this small percentage of young people, and it's probably no more than eight or nine percent of all young offenders, were actually committing 50 percent of all serious crime. So to, to me and to Graham at the time, it seemed glaringly obvious there was a need for an intervention with them. So the Irish Youth Justice Service, as they were at the time, um, agreed to fund uh, a pilot project based in the southwest inner city where Sutter's project is based, working only with young people who were deemed unsuitable diversion and also young people who were excluded from any other form of support. So obviously they gave us a list of 22 of the most serious young offenders from that broader community there, you know, and that project has been working with them since it was evaluated, independently evaluated um, by Egan Consulting, uh, funded by, which was funded by the department, um, approximately 18 months into the programme. The uh, evaluation was very positive in terms of what we were doing and the level of engagement we have with the young people. And in fact, the department increased our funding by 100% and uh, offered us a four-year contract because the model we operate there is a four-year model because those young people have been so badly damaged in many cases that a quick intervention is just not going to be successful. Unfortunately, the vast majority of those young people have been excluded from school at a fairly early age and excluded from all form of formal education. They generally have an involvement with some drug involvement. They are generally caught up in quite serious offending, which involves adults. Many are coming from families where there are quite considerable difficulties at home. 
and obviously the peer group they associate with are involved in the same behavior. So they are a fairly, fairly challenging group. But since then, like Sulla's project has developed, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's moved from a budget of 300,000 to just under a million. And obviously we are still looking to secure um, additional statutory funding for other elements of the program that we operate because the, the program operates at a number of different levels to ensure that we operate as safety nets for, for young people in that community. So we would have education programs within in the 13 local national schools in that area. And some of those are tiny little schools, but great little schools like Francis Street and Jane Bowen's, you know, um, you know, schools that don't have huge numbers in them, but great tradition and serve, you know, a very, very, quite a marginalized community. Uh, so we run programs there with every fifth class child, every sixth class child programs around building their entrepreneurship, sports programs around building self-esteem and an a program which um, in conjunction with Trinity and UCD in terms of raising college awareness. So that means that every single child in those national schools is aware of Sulla's project, no staff from Sulla's project. Our next, our next layer would be we run intensive after school programs for approximately 35 children who come to us four days a week from school, get a hot dinner, have homework support and have an activity. So they're with us from half two to approximately half six. And that's very intensive support to a group of children that the schools have identified as in need of that level of support. Uh, the final group there would be fifth class kids making that transition into, into, into first year. And that, again, that is a, an, an area of concern. The, we then have a, a, mentoring, a, a mentoring program which picks up children from 12 to 19. We have 60 children approximately on that. I think it was 62 last year. They all have an individual volunteer mentor but they meet in a club setting with our staff present at night. So they have their individual mentor, but they also group activities. And you know, maybe once every six weeks, they'll have a trip out. That's been very, very successful. And I must say the quality and the level of the volunteer mentors we have is really, really good. You know, Many of them are professionals working in the city who give up. Initially, they have to sign up to give one year to meet the young person every week for one year. But many of them stay for six or seven years. In other words, they'll stay with the journey the young person makes. So that's a real great safety net for some of those young people, you know? And uh, we, we even have a couple who have gone through six years or with their with their mentee and now they're back with another one. So it's a great commitment. And obviously they have the support of staff in the club setting. So, you know, it reduces concerns around maybe child protection concerns or making, you know, young people fit in better in that sort of setting, you know? So that's, a really busy program and many of the young people who were in our earlier earlier clubs the younger clubs move into that setting anyway because they, they need that continued support and we've just launched um a post leaving cert support group as well because not everybody makes that final transition from even though they might have done their leaving cert not everybody makes a good transition into employment or further training or or, or uh, education sometimes they struggle sometimes they fall out so we needed that final group and apart from that we do have other teenage groups that support individual groups of young people that are really struggling. And then we have our justice programs. And finally, we have a small enterprise called The Yard, which is a wood turning shop in which young people who have been excluded from the education system and excluded from, what that means both the schools and the, 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 the fallbacks like youth reach and community training workshops that they have, uh, we, we take them in on a basis uh, that we do work on their hard skills and their soft skills, very small numbers, but it's, it's quite a successful model. So there's a number of a number of safety nets at all levels there. We concentrate all our energies in the southwest inner city, which we feel is an area of the city that's been considerably neglected. You know, north the north inner city and fair play to them, they've always had very strong 
political representation. They've always got, there's been a fairly high level of investment in that needy community. The Southwest Inner community, community has the highest number of Dublin Corporation flat complexes, the highest number of Dublin Corporation flat of tenants, which yet it's, it's almost completely devoid of any real services. It hasn't had an active youth service for the last six years okay. because of difficulties with it, within systems, you know, and it doesn't have that strong political backing that the North Inner City has. So, you know, it finds difficult, it finds it very, very difficult to make a case for itself. And in fact, the biggest single Dublin Corporation complex is all of our bond flats mm -hmm. and don't have a youth service. And they wonder why there's high levels of drug abuse and high levels of criminality within, within, within those complexes, you know, so. So that's all this project. So I'm stepping up onto the board. Uh, Amy, who's been with the project from the start and was program manager under me, is now stepping into that role. And like the organization is very healthy, very strong. We may not continue with the, the, um, the language of cultivation, as we call it, because it has created some difficulties, not with the voluntary organizations who seem to understand it and buy into it, but it's definitely created some difficulties with the um, statutory side. So when you're discussing it and you're the head gardener and people are wondering, why are you going to the meeting if you're the head gardener? You know? And what is this? This You know, they don't really get the language. So does, yeah, we is. have reverted back to using words like CEO and program manager, whereas we, did, we never use that language. Before. And in some ways it's unfortunate because it did mark the project out as different. Mm -hmm. And the project does attract and has always attracted a lot of staff members from a range of different motivations. Some because they may be tied into, a, you know, a Christian organization. Um, even though the organization is, is not in any way a faith organization, but their motivation is that they really, really want to work with very marginalized young people. So we've been very, very lucky with a, the, the, the highly committed group of staff that have come to the project, many who've been there for the last seven or eight years. And, um, you know, they've been, they, they re, there's a fair, I must say, there's a very high level of commitment. And the fact that it's an independent community organization means we can try things and attempt things that maybe bigger organizations mm -hmm. won't consider you know so we have that high degree of independence that maybe large organizations don't and we still raise over 300,000 every year in terms of voluntary contributions of fundraising which gives us the space to, to try things so our model in the past has always been we come up with an idea hopefully a reasonably um, you know a reasonably creative idea uh, around around meeting a particular need we identify in that community we source private money We'll trial it, we'll see how it goes, we'll get it evaluated, and then we look for statutory money to back it up. And that's the model we've been operating all along. And it's gone, it's gone very, very well. And we've managed to recruit in some very, very good staff, like our our the our team leader for our justice program, you know, is you know, she's she's top she's young, but she's top class and we, we did we did well to headhunt her, you know. Mm -hmm. In fact, like other members of staff, she took a, a she took a salary cut to work with us, you know. So we're lucky that we have that level of commitment. So it's, it's quite something I read you know, it was to do with a, a different marginalised community recently, but there'd been a report done about a particular aspect of their lives. And what one person had said was they were so tired of speaking to researchers about their living situation and that they had seen all these reports and reports. So everybody knew what needed to be done, but nothing was changing. So it's about, as you said, these young people um, they, they've been in the system, they've, they've been maybe failed by all these different parts of the system. So it's about trust and it's about relationships. Is that maybe the difference that your organisation brings? Yeah, and I do agree with you. Some areas have been over-researched, you know, I mean, there's been quite a lot of research into the southwest inner city 
and you know people know what the needs are and know what the what the response is required and we constantly get requests all the time from academic researchers can we can we can we give them access to young men who are caught up in offending can we give them access to young men who are serious offenders and we don't we don't provide any of that access we have we do provide access to the likes of the policing authority because they want to be able to speak directly to young people who are who will maybe give a, 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 an alternative view to to um to maybe mainstream young people in terms of their attitude or the relationship with the Gardaí. And in fact, I must say the the um, the, the uh, police authority handled that in that discussion very, very well. And obviously we give access to researchers who are evaluating on our behalf or on behalf of the department, because obviously they do need to talk directly to young yeah, people. But, but, it, but just in terms of what we're trying to convince the community and young people in South Inner City is that you know, we're concentrating our, our energies on there, on that one particular community. And secondly, that one of the key ethical principles of Sutter's project is that we don't give up on young people. Mm -hmm. So no matter what happens, we will not throw a young person or slow the young person off our programs, unless probably in the in a very tiny percentage of cases where maybe the young person has needs that we just can't meet. So maybe they're struggling with a very severe mental health issue mm -hmm. and they obviously need a specific intervention that we can't give. We will continue to make contact, but obviously we would look for specific support with that. But I suppose the one key thing, because so many of these young people have been taken on by programmes in the past, including youth work programmes, where they've been promised support, and that support hasn't hasn't uh, endured because of the young person's behaviour. Yeah. So in other words, you know, I, I documented a case there for the Irish, the uh, Department of Justice is doing a new youth strategy. I documented a case on behalf of the minister asked me to, with a youngster, and he, he had maybe definitely more than 25 interventions from different statutory bodies or and many of those said to him, I'm going to be a social worker so long, or listen, we're going to take you on this program and we're going to give you support. None of those interventions survived. I mean, he was in ordinary school, didn't make it to sixth class, he was reassessed, he was sent to a special school, didn't really work out there, spent to, sent to a special secondary school, didn't work out there. By the age of 13, he was out of school altogether. So, you know, as far as he was concerned, you know, all these things had failed. Now, he was blaming himself on them. He was blaming, look, I'm that bad that I didn't even survive there. I'm that bad I was thrown out of the homework club. I was that bad I was thrown out of the after-school club. I was that bad I was thrown out of the Guardian Intervention Project. So, but all those interventions, all I'm sure made, at some stage, said to him, we're going to be there to support you. And they didn't. Now, he is a very, very difficult young person. His behaviour is quite violent. He's been excluded from his own home. He's facing very, very serious charges in the courts. He has a serious drug problem. He's involved with quite serious adult criminals, uh, you know, and he can be quite violent towards people at times. So he's not easy. But at the same time, our commitment to him is we're not going to give up. So if you continue to offend, if you're even if you're offending, uh, if your offending increases, if your level of offending increases, we will continue to support you. Because we, we know it's going to take a while for him to actually believe what we say is true. Yes, you can trust us. Yes, we're not going to walk away. Of course he doesn't believe it. There's no reason to believe mm -hmm. it. So obviously we have to go through a number of crises and a number of difficult situations with him before he would actually get to the point where he does believe that we're going to stick with him and that we do see some potential in him. And that's a slow process. And that's why we've asked IYJS and why they've agreed to give us one, to, to, to pilot our project over a four-year cycle because we believe it, it takes 18 months to two years of that to really get the level of relationship to, to a point where a young person like that is prepared to be vulnerable with us, where he's prepared to be completely honest to, with us 
about all aspects of his life. And until he is, we can't do it. We can't really help him make changes unless he's totally honest, you know. So if he's lying about his level of offending, if he's lying about his level of drug use, if he's lying about his involvement in adult gangs, if he's telling us lies about that, we can't really change anything because, we're, because we don't know the truth. So we have to get to a point where he's prepared to tell us anything. And obviously that makes him very, very vulnerable because we know information that could really harm him or do damage to him. We also know information about that makes him feel at times, you know, weaker that if he divulged, divulged it to any of his mates, he might, feel, he might feel that his status is threatened. So it's a very careful process building that relationship. You know? But for me, over, because I've always worked with young people caught up in offending for the last 40 years, I know the process actually works. And even if it means that young people will still go into prison and spend time in prison, if we can maintain that relationship through that, we, we will begin the process again. And, you know, generally, you know, the, the relationship has actually been strengthened during that period because they expect you to drop them. Because so many projects are funded on the basis, oh no, I only work with them before they go into prison, or I only work with them while they're on probation, or I only work with them while they're either on um, remand and once remand is finished I can't work with anymore or once they go into prison oh, that's somebody else's job so there's no continuity of of support so we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to operate outside of those silos so even those other supports will come and go for them we're going to be there on a permanent basis you know Rua so and Compass are your two prisons. Compass and Rua are our two justice programs. The yeah. two justice programs. And it's about rehabilitative justice. And it's about... Yeah, yeah. Now, for, for us, it's a broader... We have a broader canvas than, than just maybe what people might see as rehabilitation. Because sometimes rehabilitation is seen as just stopping them offending. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, that could mean they're sitting at home every day smoking weed and watching reruns of Coronation Street for the next 10 years. You know, and just because they're not offending, rehabilitation is seen as successful. But for us, it's about getting them to stop their offending. But we have to fill it with, with something else. And obviously, we have to believe in those young people that they have the potential to do something else. Like the young man you spoke about, who at 52 now has finally completed a third level qualification. You know? yes. So that's, that's something that we have to believe. So for us, it isn't. Our funder might be happy that they reduce or stop their offending and might be too worried because the funding still comes in silos. They might be too worried about about if he's about what else he does but for us it's really really important that once we reach the stopping or the reduction of offending that we don't stop the work that we have the space and time to continue to work with them towards a much more positive lifestyle so they can in fact be given opportunities to overcome some of the hurdles that they faced in their earlier life and for that you know that is a long-term program and for some of them it is about encouraging them back into education it's saying to them yeah you could become an apprentice even though you're 25 now yeah, you can do that. We'll support you to do that, you know. Or would you would consider going back even to do a junior cert? And that's a big challenge for some young people, you know. And we have got support from the likes of St. Kevin's School in Crumlin, which are, have been quite good to us in terms of taking young people on just to do woodwork or just to do maths, because we would have young people doing our, who've been through on our woodwork programme who have offending backgrounds, but they didn't survive enough to do a junior cert. Now, they're excluded from apprenticeships because they don't do a junior cert, maths and other subjects and even though they could be the best woodworker in the world if they haven't got that form of qualification but for some of them going back in the door of a school is a big trauma you right. know? Mm -hmm. and like I would almost prefer to see that you know with adult education or with going on to do the university course once you reach a certain age the pre-requirement entries are done away with mm -hmm. I really can't see why we can't negotiate some deal with apprenticeships where if you, if you reach a certain age 
and you've prov- proven some hard skills and some soft skills that you can go into the apprenticeship without your junior cert maths or whatever, because it just seems completely unfair in these young people that the system has excluded from schools that they can't progress those elements in their life without that formal exam. So yeah, rehabilitation is part of what we do, but it, it doesn't cover the full the full canvas that we, we take on. You know? I understand. So it's almost sort of bringing a negative up to zero and then you're moving from a zero to a plus. Yeah, yeah. And I actually don't think that it works bringing a negative up to zero and then stopping because if, if there's a void created, if you have spent most of your week smoking weed, hanging around with the group to smoke weed and involved in petty crime, that fills a lot of hours of your week. Mm-hmm. And we do this... We do this 24-hour clock with them. Okay, what time do you get up at? What time do you smoke your first smoke at? What, what time do you leave the house at? Where do you go when they leave the house? What time do you go to bed at? You know, getting them to look at how much of their day is caught up in that activity and that behaviour and seeing can we get, get them to begin to consider making changes. So for us, you know, filling their life with positive activity and hopefully that includes education and employment is really important if they're going to be able to sustain long-term, stay, stay away from criminality long-term. And obviously, breaking their breaking their links with with the drug culture is another really really important part because, obviously, you know as long as drugs are illegal, you have to purchase them from a, a drug gang, and w- once that contact is there and the possibility of sliding back into, which is a big issue for a lot of young men we work with, sliding into debt is a big issue because obviously if you can't pay financially, well then you pay by, by, carrying, holding, selling or in more extreme cases, intimidation, violence, even up to, or even up to murder, you know. So moving them away from that culture is a, is a big challenge, you know. So, I mean, I, I know on your website you have the recidivism rates. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. quite striking. Yeah. Pretty shocking, you know. And, you know, it's something I've, I remember, I've been a member of IPRT's board and something that's been banging on with saying, listen, they have to be brought down, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think conditions in the prisons have improved enormously in the last 10, 15 years. No slopping out, mostly individual s- s- cells. The numbers have been brought down by, by, by legislation, that, which means that people who owe money for their fridge or their TV generally don't end up in prison anymore. Um, but however, and they are much safer and much more secure. But however, you know, the other part of the prison mission which is the rehabilitation of offenders. We're struggling at that. When you compare us to other European countries, so other European countries have proved that they can bring their recidivism rate down, particularly for the 17 to 25s. They can bring that down to 20%, or in some cases, even slightly lower than that. We're up around 65, 70%. So I have been, I've been really pushing hard that they look at the programs that they have in the prisons in terms of that, that rehabilitation and preparation for life after prison becomes becomes the core element of programs in there, and that the punishment isn't punishment isn't hard time, punishment is a loss of liberty. Mm-hmm. So I've looked at programs in particularly in Scandinavia and programs in Germany. We've been up north there last year to look at the women. The, they've a combined women and juvenile adult juvenile male prison up there, and they've made dramatic changes there. Even the term prison is no longer used up there. It's called a college, and um, you know, but a, a disappointment constantly here with the failure of prisons to, to maybe take up some of the initiatives that have worked so well in other countries. And, and it's not even to do with money, because in fact, many of those programs make prisons cheaper because there's less need for 
for for security and for prison guards. And in fact, if people don't reoffend, don't come back to prison, obviously that's makes the whole system much more effective and much cheaper. And that you know, and I don't believe you know I've, I've come across many senior officials in the prison service, working in the prisons, and governors who have really good ideas about what they'd like to try. And they're they're not the stumbling block. You know, I've seen them wanting to improve. Like wanting, to, I mean, one of the difficulties with, with prison systems in some countries, and including in Ireland, is that prisoners don't have to make any decisions. They get up at a certain time because they're told to. They get their meals at a certain time because they're told to. The meal is whatever's dished up. They go to the yard at whatever time. They come back whatever time. They go to bed whatever time. They even watch whatever they're told because that's the system. So they might be making five decisions a month. Do I go to the library or do I not go to the library? It might be one, you know. Do I read a book or maybe do I do go do a night class? But very, very small numbers of decisions. And the choice that prisoners have in Irish prisons is very, very small compared to life when you're making hundreds of decisions every week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to create situations where prisoners are taking more responsibility for their own life, what they're doing. And, there are, you know, I definitely know in Wheatfield prisons, there's an interest in, in introducing a, an under 23 wing where the prisoners would be given uh, where there would be a lot more emphasis on rehabilitation there's definitely been attempts within Wheatfield prison to, get, to ensure that some of the long-term prisoners men serving very long sentences are given are, are given much more scope for independent living within the prison now they're still serving their sentence but they're still going to be in prison so in terms of cooking their own food purchasing their own groceries washing their own clothes looking after their own cells individualizing the cells in a way that they become their space, even to the point where there's a talk about the possibility of them having some limited internet access in their cells and some limited phone usage from their cells. And there has been some, some movement around that in terms of some of the open prisons where prisoners are allowed uh, access to phones. But, you know, definitely there are stumbling blocks within within. The, at, at a political level in terms of introducing some of those suggestions and definitely I think politicians are afraid of what the pub, of public opinion they're afraid to be seen to be soft on crime and even in even in the north where there has been you know where there's been attempts to particularly in the women's prison to give the women's in the final year of their sentence much more freedom and the freedom to to purchase their own groceries and cook their own food and to even to run enterprise enterprises within the prison system, enterprise that other women can pay to, for the service, whether it's a nail bar or a hairdresser's or a small gym or cookery class, you know, so the women are, are encouraged to be entrepreneurs. That has met with, you know, with uh, poor media coverage. You know, the uh, prisoners are given, prisoners are allowed to have parties, you know, the usual, the usual sort of tabloid type headlines and, you know, attempts in, small attempts here in the South to do the same has also met with poor tabloid coverage and that. So I think there is a, politicians are a bit afraid. They're afraid that prisoners are going to be seen to be spoiled. So like one of the projects we were involved in in St. Pat's in a small way was we had set up a small fish farm to grow vegetables in the fish years. It's, it's called aquaphonics and it's, it's quite a successful process and you can grow vegetables very, very quickly and very well in these small ponds. Uh, you stock them with fish obviously first, you know, and um, we had a small operation going in St. Pat's. We wanted to move the operation to Wheatfield. They were very keen. We wanted to build a base, you know, build a, a proper plant in there. But we also wanted to pay the prisoners for their work. And that went into a big, big, big st stumbling block because apparently Irish legislation doesn't allow for prisoners to earn money while they're in prison. 
we also wanted to include, and even if we were prepared to hold their wages in a bank account so they could only claim it to come out, again, that was a stumbling block and that project has never really got off the ground. And, you know, in the North, there's been the opening of, you know, cafes and restaurants associated with prison. The prisoners go in there and work and get an opportunity to, to learn and to earn a wage. We, we can't seem to facilitate, to move to that level and facilitate that, you know. Um, I, I, I looked, I, if you look at Kibble, in, it's, a, it's a remand centre and a centre, a secure accommodation centre for young people with very serious difficulties in Scotland. Like they recognise the need to put people through a long process. So young people saying they will begin in a proper apprenticeship and will move up through that apprenticeship while they're living there. But the, the organisation that runs Kibble also owns a number of enterprises. So Kibble, Kibble um, Construction Company provides immediate employment for people coming out of Kibble. So they can go in there as a bricky or a chippy, continue their apprenticeship, come out fully qualified, and even continue to work within that system. You know, And they have other systems around restaurants and around food preparation, you know, so people can learn those skills, but people can also begin to earn a proper wage, you know, so, but, but there needs to be changes in legislation, but it also needs to be a willingness to overcome some of the, some of the difficulties around that. I pushed hard for a, um, a horse project to go into Overstown. Um, some involvement in the horse industry myself, and I see, often see young people from very disadvantaged backgrounds and poor education, get employment in the horse industry and do well. In other words, they'd be taken on as work riders. They'd be taken on as stable hands. The, the, a lucky few will make it as a jockey. But there is you know, a huge opportunity for uh, employment there. And secondly, sometimes that employment is going to take them away from their home, which is quite a good thing for some of them. In particular, since up, you know, at times up to 30% of young men serving sentences in Overstown are travellers, that identification with horses would, would be um, very positive. In fact, Racing Ireland were prepared to fund the development of a, a training unit. That training unit has now moved to, um, instead of going to Overstown, is now uh, up in a, a different prison up, up in Ross Cray, up, up, uh, up, sorry, up in Castlereagh. So they, you know, and the Irish Racing Institute came in and funded the building of barns and the, the you know, organised the horses and organised an area so the prisoners of that prison can learn those skills. But I actually think it would have worked really, really well with young offenders because many young offenders from the likes of you know, West Dublin and Northwest Dublin and a huge identification with the horse industry and horses. And I think it's something they would have had something to work at every day while they were in there, learn skills, whether it's farian or stable hand or jockey, that would have made them instantly employable on their day out. And in fact, if the programme would work well, maybe the final six months of their of their time in Oberstown could be spent travelling to stables and coming, returning to Oberstown at night. You know, and like the German prisons operate that model. So the last six months of your sentence in a German juvenile detention centre, you'll live in a house outside the immediate grounds of the prison, but still attached to the prison, but you'll be going out to employment every day and coming back that night. You know, so they try to make sure that all the factors are lined up in line I suppose it, to it, give their prisoners the best chance of doing well when they leave. So that, whereas like yeah. here there's a tendency to operate in silos. Yeah, because it's a big ask to to, as you said, to remove somebody from their life, de-skill them, yeah, send them back out into society with less skills than they had before prison and expect them to um say, right, that's it, I've turned over a new leaf, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. um without without providing people any skills, without providing people any kind of support. It is a huge ask. 
so it, it's all kind of linked in it really and I mean you know I know you were sort of saying the, the economics of it I mean I know cost savings isn't necessarily an indicator of success in these sort of programs but the amount of money that it costs yeah. to keep a young man in Oberstown um, is ginormous I mean yeah. hundreds of thousands every year yeah. so you know so even even to make that economic argument there is you know, as you said, it's not about cost savings across the life, you know, because it's somebody's yeah. life, it's it's somebody's potential and, and giving them access to their potential. It is about more than cost savings. But as you said, even to make the argument on cost savings, it must be cheaper to provide social work and supports than it is to spend a couple of hundred thousand on keeping some lad locked up for a year. Yeah, I, mean, I think the Children's Act is very clear, you know, imprisonment for young people is it has to be the last resort and i think to a large extent the system operates on that basis you know but if we do make that really really serious decision to remove somebody from their family and their community and send them to prison i think we should be giving putting every possible resource in to giving that young person a good chance for life when they come out mm. not just removing them from the streets so mm. they won't cause further harm yeah. I remember in many cases they're going straight back into the same family circumstances and the same community in which they offended initially. And it's very difficult to stay out of offending in that situation. So that's because nothing happens, nothing has changed in the, from the situation where they left. They'll still go back to the same bunch of mates. They're still, if, they're, if they're coming from a family that's already criminalized, they'll go straight back into that family. So really, if we're taking that drastic step of removing from their home, and I think if we're doing that, we should really only be, they should be only should only be allowing the courts to give them long sentences. I, this, this idea of giving somebody a short, hard slap of three months to six months, it's a waste of time. You know, it's, it doesn't work. Nobody is frightened by the idea of having to go to it to serve time. Young people aren't. So this idea, well, if I send them to Oberstown for three months or six months, he'll never reoffend again. That just doesn't work. You know, uh, in fact, many of them go into Oberstown and probably enjoy a short respite there because they've somewhere to live. They're getting decent meals every day they they get pocket money they get a nice present at christmas which i'm delighted with because mm. it should be because it should be caring and it should be warm and comfortable you know and the staff work hard to make it that sort that place but if we are doing that we are sending there i think they should be sent there for reasonably long sentences which gives staff an opportunity to really rehabilitate them but for me the rehabilitation it, it isn't about them learning to behave themselves while they're in oversell because it's relatively easy to behave yourself in one way in there mm. But it's about preparing them from day one for the day they're going to be released. That's it. Unfortunately, yeah. like Oberstown will say, well, the minute they walk out the gate, they're no longer our responsibility. We can do nothing about them. Mm. That silo approach really isn't good enough, you know. Um, and I mean, I do think that there is a willingness within Oberstown to look at things like that, you know, to look at like we, we've been invited to, to work closer with Oberstown in there with young people. We would know when they're in there. And definitely because we work in the adult prison to make the transition from young people who are getting very long sentences and they will they will age out of Oversound and be sent to another prison, making that transition easier for them because we can link up with them on both sides, you know. And remember, Suzanne, unfortunately, there are increasing numbers of young people who are committing very, very serious crimes who are going to be going into prison at 15, 16, 17 and maybe spending the next 15 years in prison. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, that's going to lead to trauma, delayed development. So that's, you know, that group are going to have to be really looked at fairly carefully because they will still be getting released at a relatively young age. They'll still be getting released in their late 20s. But I mean, just in terms of what might happen to those young people when they're released is something we really have, thought has to go into. You know? So yeah, I do think 
we are not at the races when it comes to rehabilitation in in comparison to how far other countries have moved. And in fact, we don't have an open prison here for for, for young people, mm-hmm. and we don't have an open prison here for women, which I actually think I'm always surprised hasn't been challenged. You know, I, if you think of 25 years ago, we had maybe we had definitely had four open prisons for young people. We had um, Spike Islands for all the complaints and the fact that it was a Victorian prison. It was still an open prison. People could go out and wander around the open air because they were on an island, you know. We had Lochran House, which at the time was opened as a particular prison for joyriders, as was Spike Island. But again, it was an open prison and still is an open prison, but they have changed the age cohort from underage to overage. And we had Shangana House, which everybody involved at the time, including the people who staffed it, everybody felt Shangana House was a success. It had no high walls around it, no great security. But very few people ever escaped from it or ran away from it because young people, young people did well while they were there. It was Michal McDougall when he was minister just to the side of her because there weren't enough young offenders to keep Shangana going and St. Pat's going, side of the close Shangana, which to me was an absolutely crazy situation. And in fact, once they, once they closed it, they realised they couldn't sell it off because it had been donated to the state for the, for the benefit and welfare of children and young people. So I think it lay empty for years. There were probably some courses going on, but it was a terrible shame to see that, that close and it really was, you know. And even the fact that the original Oberstown was an open prison as well. So now we just have the one detention centre, which is a closed detention centre. Mm-hmm. I think that's so for young people who are doing well, there isn't really a step down facility where they can give in, be given more freedom, you know. And I suppose the worry from the statutory point of view is young people who are given freedom, some will abuse that and some will escape and some won't go home and the media will pick up on it and they'll highlight the fact that one child every six months escaped. And invariably they get picked up very, very quickly because they usually go home to their granny or go home to their mommy. So, because they don't have anywhere else to go. So it's not a big deal, but the media do pick up and give the minister a hard time. And I mean, it's an absolute shame that there's no open prison for women. You know, it just, it's, I just can't believe that we can operate in a state. uh, I call it, you know, in terms of equality, that women don't have that. You don't have facility for women who are serving long sentences and maybe who are ready for that next step. You know. So yeah, be looking. I'd be pushing the Irish government more and more to look at the systems that are used in other countries. And the other key issue there would be, in most other countries, they recognise that a young person c- continues to develop up to the age of twenty-five, mm-hmm. and particularly that part of the brain, the frontal lobe part of the brain, that that c- controls reasoning and control reduces impulsive behavior and controls you know that 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 part of the brain that puts the brake on stupid behavior that's the last part of the brain to develop and isn't normally developed until 24 25 and if then if you add in early alcohol use and maybe you know regular weed use Mm -hmm. that part of the brain may even it might even be a longer process in developing that part of the brain so for us and for most of the european developed countries it makes clear sense that the the juvenile justice approach should be extended to at least 24, as it is in those other countries, and that a huge emphasis should be put on rehabilitation for that particular age group. It means that a much smaller cohort of them will go on to be long-term habitual offenders. You know? But again, getting that across the line mm-hmm. is a difficulty. You know, and we and haven't got to that point yet. Is a lot to do with it is a lot to do with with prospects and flourishing. So it's it's education and it's training or it's skills. To, yeah. to, to to allow people because I suppose I know you 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 mentioned we had talked before we pressed hit record about a tweet I had seen earlier on 
Um, this particular individual, I'll just read it out. 18 year olds joined the army, 25 year old discharged by a military prison, 30 still a homeless drug user, 35 serving 10 years in prison, 40 years of age out on a five year license, 47 enrolled in Leeds Uni, uh, at 48 started a social work degree in Bradford and at 52 he was celebrating his birthday and becoming a newly qualified social worker and in his bio what he says is his past does not define him. And I suppose it, it's that it's that story, it's that journey, it's that access to education, as you said, to I can't undo what's been done, but I now have tools. But you do need skills to be able to do that and you do need support to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously you do need, you know, you need the belief in yourself. And, the, and sometimes that is belief that others can instill in you, that you, it is possible to do that. And unfortunately, we have a number of systems here that... Uh, that are you know make it difficult to do that here so you know we we brought in guard vetting in terms of re restricting access to a whole range of positions and courses to protect children and young people it was really supposed to be about ensuring that people who had a propensity or a history of violence or, or sexual violence towards children and, and, and women would not inadvertently gain access unfortunately it's used as a, as a because all your offences come up in it. it is used as a tool to exclude people who want to rebuild their lives and who want to get back into being a valued member of their community and they can't and I just think it's an awful shame we have probably one of the weakest spent convictions legislation here in Ireland and I know Lynn Ram is trying to get another bill through to try and broaden it even slightly but I mean it's very very difficult and like one of the key elements in terms of successful rehabilitation is being welcomed back into your community. And which means ideally you will become a value member of your community. Garda vetting has made that very, very difficult for, even as you said, for young people who maybe just got involved in small things like joyriding or, you know, robbery from shops between the ages of 15 and 20. They're now 35. They haven't committed offence for 15 years. That will still appear on the Garda vetting when they, so you take, a, you take a, a, a man who's rebuilt his life. He's now got three young kids. He's 42. And his little young one comes home and says, Daddy, they're looking for parents to go on the school trip. And my friend's daddy is going, will you go as well? He goes down to the school, said, this not put my name for that, but my daughter wants me to go along. He, and then they say, well, you have to fill in this guard of head. It comes back and because he has convictions, they say, we really don't think you're suitable. How does he explain that to his child? And how does he feel about the fact that, well, he served his sentence, he's paid for his crime which yet he's paying for the rest of his life, you know? So I really think that's important. The Germans have it really down to a T in one way. Like they're convinced that there needs to be a warm welcome in communities for people returning from prison. If we really expect them to, to overcome, if we really expect them to be rehabilitated. And one of the programs they run in their juvenile prison is every inmate who's interested is trained as a firefighter. Because in Germany, the fire fighting units in all the small towns and villages are all volunteers. So if he goes back to his town and he's already a fully trained firefighter, he has value to that community. Mm -hmm. It'd be like someone going to going to prison here in Ireland and being trained as a, a lifeboat coxswain and going back to that community. He would be of huge value to that mm -hmm. community. So I suppose educating communities that they need to welcome back people who have spent time in prison and served their time. But if we really want them to do well, well, then we have a responsibility to make sure they feel welcome in our community and we do everything possible to stop them feeling welcome. So in other words, whether you want to become a leader in the Scouts or have coach in the local football club, your past is always going to haunt you.
like I have a, you know, there's a man I know very, very well, a really, really decent man, really good man, uh, involved heavily in, in on the voluntary based working community. He had served time for a year for, because he held the, the proceeds of a robbery for somebody he knew quite well, but somebody he was also very, very afraid of. He, he was caught, refused to obviously name the person, ended up serving 18 months, never told his kids or anything, never told anybody. And he, he won a bet in the book. He's a big bet. And the next morning, two of the tabloids had splashed over the front page. You know, Irish gangster wins substantial bet. His photograph in the middle of it. The, the guy was absolutely devastated. He would just felt, he had, you know, he, his wife knew about it, but his children never knew about it. And they, they, his children would have been older teenagers by this stage. His neighbours never knew about it. You know, it just, it had, it was devastating for him. He, you know, he offered to resign from a lot of the activities involved and people were saying, like, we, we trust him. He's lived here for 25 years, you know, but it just shows you. And I, I, unfortunately, I really think the media has a really serious case to answer in terms of how at times it focuses in on ex-offenders and doesn't really give them a break at all, you know. You know, people, we, we either we believe in rehabilitation or we don't believe in rehabilitation. You know, you have people who say, why can't we just lock them up to the keyway? You know, we're supposed to be, you know, um, a modern, mature, uh, you know, nation. We can't believe that those punishments are going to be used. And we know they're not going to be used. So why pretend? You know, I mean, I used to have, I used to have, Gayborn used to do me head in occasionally when I was young because he'd always be, bring back the cat of nine tails. Or if I had me made, these young people would be, would be brought in and they'd be, they'd be bullwhipped, you know. Now we knew that was never going to happen. But I mean, it's it, just a, this whole idea that, that, um, that young people who offend or people who offend, that the only way to make them stop offending is by increasing and giving them harsher and harsher punishments. And we know from, see, we know from, from um, countries like the United States mm -hmm. that that effect doesn't work. The three strikes and you're out, in other words, quit the same offence three times and you, you serve life in prison and it is life in prison. Doesn't doesn't deter or doesn't do it. You know, the ultimate punishment execution hasn't reduced murder rates in the United States at all. You know, and in fact, some of the states that have brought back in the death penalty have some of the highest uh, murder rates in the whole United States. So, you know, there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that harsher punishments do anything except further alienate offenders and make them feel, well, I don't really have a choice, you know. So it is uh, now there are there are some glimmers of, of good news. I mean, there's a program called Jerk, and they're going to now introduce Junior Jerk, where, you know, and I mean, I must say, to be fair, you know, the Gardaí at, at times are one of the organizations I find that are, are very strong in terms of, you know, that something needs to be done and locking people up constantly for short periods of time doesn't work. You know, they still come back and reoffend. So Jerk was concentrating on working with, say, they can say the, the 30 most serious burglars in, in a community, the most serious ones, doing most burglaries, giving them a, making them an offer. Come into us. We, we'll do everything possible to give you a training and education so you can earn an income outside of offending. And uh, if you come in and make that effort and are seen to make that effort, obviously that will stand to you in court. However, if you choose, it was a bit of a carrot and stick. If you choose not to take part in the program, we will be also making known in court that you were that an offer was made to you and you turned that offer down. Now, in some cases, you know, talking to the guards in some of the areas where that's been piloted. 
the numbers of burglary leads has dropped considerably because there could have been, I mean, if you take, the, if there were two or three guys who were committing burglaries five nights a week and doing two or three houses a night, obviously, if you pull them out of that, you see a huge reduction in, in that offence being committed, you know. So it's a pilot that I would have a bit of hope for, you know, that they would, instead of, often rehabilitation has worked around the fringes. Let's work with the less serious offenders. They're the ones we can have the best success with. But in fact, if you take out the core offenders, you'll have a much better impact on offending. Yes, it's a harder job. It's a tougher job. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research gone in in the University of Limerick around working with young people caught up in adult offending gangs and rehabilitating them. And one of the key questions always is, what about the nephews and sons of the core criminal families? Are we going to try and work with them? Of course, that's a huge challenge. Mm. But I actually don't believe there's any mother out there who actually wants his son to end or her son to end up doing long stretches in prison or worse, to be shot. Mm. So I do think that, of course, they should be targeted. Of course, they should be given the opportunity. Yes, it's going to be very, very difficult, you know. But I do know from the young man that we've come into contact with on the real program and built a relationship with, you know, there is potential in every one of them. And... I don't know any of them who realistically, when you have them on their own, you have conversations with their own, who really envisage spending the rest of their life in and out of prison on a regular basis. And some of them will be young men whose fathers are doing 20-year stretches or 15-year stretches, you know, and they've seen the impact that's had on their own family. You know? So I do think everybody, if we're talking about social justice, everybody should be given the opportunity and resources need to be going into those most marginalised rather than fishing around, around the edges so, that yeah. might be the sentiment, I think, to end it on. Yeah, I think so, Suzanne, because I'm worn out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a great conversation, though, it really has. And we didn't even get on to the education system, unfortunately, you know. Um, next time. We'll do that next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. If you have any ideas for future podcasts, anything that you'd like to hear discussed, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.